There we go. Back to our meeting. There we go. Okay. Thank you for your patience. So the point of this is that your hearts might be established. If you remember, your heart is where we make decisions. It's uh, our decider. And their decider, uh, he says, he wants their decider uh, in verse 13 to be established, that word we looked at last week, to stand firm, to stand solid, not to be moved about by everything so that you shift, so that as you're making decisions with regard to what God has for you, you're not shifting around going, well, maybe this, oh, maybe that. Um, I hate that. I don't like being indecisive, and my wife will testify, I am a person that struggles with making, oh, I don't want to make the wrong decision. I can really get worked up about that. But he says the goal here is for your heart to be established so that when you see what God wants you to do, you're not wavering on it going, oh, I don't know, I don't know. But firm, your hearts are firm and they're not being tossed about as you're making these things. Blameless in holiness. Now he's looking here to a future time because it's blameless in holiness. And I would say that goes back to blameless in, with regard to um, our love for one another. That we really are. We're blameless. You can't point your finger at us and go, well, you talked a good talk, but I never saw love. Uh, I didn't see ever see you make any effort for the saints. Okay. Um, and so love, uh, to, to abound in one love towards one another and to overflow in love, he wants them to be blameless in those areas, their hearts firm. And then he comes to this word, or, or uh, Excuse me, it's not the word yet. It's down here. The, in, before God our Father, at the presence or the coming of our of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Now I've looked at this, and unless you have, unless you're following along an unusual translation, uh, all of your Bibles, I'm assuming, have the coming coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have that word coming, and that word that is translated coming here is the Greek word parousia. And I'm going to pull up, I'm going to share uh, this with you here for a minute so you can see this. Uh, let me make this really big here for you. Let me increase the size. This is the, the word. Oh, now, now I've got this stuff over the top. If you have a small screen, this might be harder to see, but uh, trying to trying to share a little bit of this with you. It's this word here, parousia, and I've got these highlighted because I pulled these up again today and walked back through these one more time. Uh, and there was something, I, it's interesting. There's a value in going back over and looking at your notes after you had prepared notes back a couple, two or three weeks ago or something to go back over them because there was something I had not noticed until today. But anyway, you can see over there in the column on the right side, uh, the information column, you can see over there that it says, um, coming or presence, and you can see how they uh, pronounce the word. Actually, this one does not tell you how to pronounce it, but it's the word parousia is what it is. And it's that, that Greek word there, although it's translated coming. It's translated coming in the 24 places. And if you looked up on the top, one of the top lines, I'll tell you it occurs 24 times in the New Testament. And we're going to go through, my goal is to go through every one of these tonight and point some things out about the significance of this word parousia. But I'm going to point this out here in the Greek, and I'm not going to go through every one of them here in the Greek, but I, I'm just going to point it out here. This is our word parousia. This is a pronoun, your, and then this is the this is the definite article. So the of you, parousia. Jump down to this one. This is the parousia. 
And it says, in this way is the, there's the the again, parousia, and so on and so forth. It's always the parousia. But notice, this is 1 Corinthians 16, 17. It says, now, or now, I rejoice on or over the parousia, the parousia of Stephanus and Fortuanus and Achaica. Go to 2 Corinthians 7, 6. And he goes, uh, um, he says, um, but it says the one comforting uh, the humble, uh, God that has called us in, or, or he comforted us, and this is going to comforted us, and this is how God did it, by the parousia of Titus. And again, not only by the parousia of him, and then it says now, but the parousia of uh, of the body or the presence of Paul's body is weak. And we're going to go through all these, but this is the point. You think this is tedious, but it's the fact that every place that this word occurs in the New Testament always has a definite article. Every time. And I'd not noticed this before when I went through this before, but I noticed it today when I was going back over these this morning and I was like, wow. And there's a reason that that's significant. Because it had been recently suggested to me, and I've been, I've been over the word parousia before, and this is what the word parousia means. Let's just get this out of the way. The word parousia means to be present to. By video, I am present to you, but I am not present to you in body. And that's always what this word emphasizes. This word, though it is translated in your English Bible's coming, it does not mean coming. It always means presence. It always means that someone or something is present to somebody else. And yes, there's a coming that causes them to be present, but it's not the coming itself. And you're going to see that in just a minute. We're going to look at some examples that will, you will plainly see that that's the case. So let's take a look at a couple of examples. And, and I've already kind of pointed them out, but I want you to see them in your Bibles. Turn to 1 Corinthians and I'm going to stop sharing this now. I'll go back to this. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16. We just read this verse a moment ago. And it says, But now I rejoice upon... Uh, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 16, 17. Pardon me. But now I rejoice over the presence or the coming, your Bibles will have, but it's the presence of Stephanus and a Fortuantus, and Achaicus, because um, these men have filled up what was lacking with regard to you guys. In other words, there's some things lacking in the Corinthians, and these guys showed up and made up that lack. But here's, here's what Paul is not saying. Paul's not saying, hey, I was glad there was a knock on the door, and we looked, and we saw, oh, look it, it's Stephanus, and Fortuantus, and Achaicus. Hey, guys, glad you showed up. No, he's talking about their coming and being with Paul, hanging out with Paul, sitting down and talking with Paul, eating with Paul, and making up what was lacking, in some sense, in some way, with regard to what the Corinthians were doing. Does everybody see that? Mine says because they made up for your absence. No, I don't think it's made up for your absence at all. It's I, I believe it's it's talking about these guys. These guys were actually, these were some of the believers from Corinth. So when Paul writes, in, the, as a quick aside, 
In 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul says, I couldn't write unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, he's obviously not saying the whole church is carnal. These men here that came from the Corinthian church are evidence that there were some spiritual believers in the church. In fact, I would assert the very fact that Paul talks about and reveals a, a, few mis a couple of mysteries in this book indicates that there were believers that were spiritual because you don't give mysteries to carnal Christians because they either they won't get it or they will take it the wrong way and they will run with it and cause tr more trouble for themselves. And so mysteries are for those believers who are maturing. But if they're not maturing, you don't teach them, you don't teach them mysteries. There's other basic Christian truths that, that non-mature believers need or immature believers need so that they can mature. But if they're not maturing, you don't teach them mysteries. So this is what so this is what Paul is getting at. Now let's go over to 2 Corinthians, which we also pointed out. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And he's going to talk about Titus. And Titus says, but, of uh, verse 6, 2 Corinthians 7, 6, it says, but the one encouraging the humble, Josh talked about humility on Sunday, or Sunday afternoon, did a really good study on humility. Uh, the one encouraging the humble, he encouraged us, that is God, by the presence of Titus. Not only by his presence, but also by the encouragement by which he was encouraged over you, announcing, verse 7, to us, your longing and your mourning and your zeal on behalf of me, so that it caused me even to rejoice. Now, if you understand what he's saying, again, like we illustrated with the three guys or the three groups of people um, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, so we have the same thing here. Paul isn't saying, hey, we were encouraged because we saw coming up the driveway, there's Titus, all right, he's come. That's not it. It's that Titus came in and shared with Paul and talked with Paul. In fact, he makes it very clear on in verse 7 where he says, it wasn't just him personally being present with us, but it's that being present with us, he reported to us what you guys are feeling how you guys are over there in Corinth. And so he says, it's, it's not just the arrival, it's not just the coming, it's the being here with us. That's what this word that's translated coming means. It's his presence with them. That's what Paul is talking about here with Titus. I think most of us probably can see that pretty easy. Um, if you look in chapter 10 here, First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you remember, just a, 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 as a, a reminder on the nature of why, one of the reasons, one of the reasons that Paul is writing 2 Corinthians is because some false apostles, unsaved men, passing themselves off as apostles of Christ, came in, and, and in order for them to get a foothold in the church, they had to kind of try to malign Paul's reputation because they wanted to be like Paul in terms of Paul's position. And Paul even says that in this letter, they want to be considered like us. Okay. And that's in, give me just a second. I can tell you where it is. If you want to write it down, that's in chapter 11, verse 12. We're not going to go look at it, 
But this is one of the things, apparently, that those false apostles claimed then, one of the things that they said. Uh, in verse 10, because, and this is what they said, that in his epistles, he says, says things that are heavy and strong, but in his presence, in his presence, there's our word, in body, he's weak, and his speech is despised. Now, this is interesting because this kind of, when I was going back through these today, this actually got me sidetracked on something else that I was looking at. One of the things about Paul that is very interesting, we've read Paul's letters. We went through, a couple of years ago, we went through all these New Testament letters and why Paul wrote them, as well as the other New Testament writers. And we saw that there were always conflict. There were problems that, that Paul was addressing. <clears throat> and when Paul wrote those things, he wrote some stuff that's pretty tough. I mean, when you read 1 Corinthians, I mean, when a person goes, I couldn't write unto you as unto spiritual. I had to write unto you as unto carnal. I had to write unto you as babbling babes. That's kind of tough language. If you're an adult and you got a letter, I mean, could you imagine if somebody wrote a letter to you and said, hey, uh, you guys are like carnal people over there. You're so fleshly and you talk like you're babies. You'd go, what? You know? And so Paul's letters are pretty tough. And so I can kind of understand. But when Paul was present with people, Paul's nature, Paul's, and he, he says this about himself in chapter 6. You can go back and read it. I think it's in chapter 6 and verse 6. I mean, you, you can go read, read through all chapter 6 and you'll find the verse. But Paul says, personally, when he was present, he was meek. That remained, he maintained, main, remained tame and not sidetracked by going after them like a wild dog that sees a, a cat running in the backyard and takes off chasing after it. It wasn't like that. He was long-suffering with people. He was kind. It's really amazing. This, this has been a challenge for me to learn this, I think, over the years. I don't think God wants us to be mean, harsh, bombastic Christians. God really wants us to be people that exercise the fruit of the Spirit. But see, those False apostles looked at Paul's character and the fruit of this when he's exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit to these believers when he's present with them, that they look at Paul and say, Yeah, he's weak, man. His words are weak. Man, that guy, I mean. Because how would the world straighten this out? The world would come in there and say, This is what you guys all have to do. And if you don't have to do, you're in big trouble. We're going to fine you or whatever we're going to do. We're going to jail you. We're going to, and we talk tough. You know, but Paul wasn't like that. Paul tended to be calm. And the point, the reason that this is important for us in this verse is he doesn't says my coming. It's not that my coming, my body is weak. In other words, Paul, I don't think they're saying that Paul was this weak little guy. They're just saying whatever Paul's stature and build or anything like that, he didn't exercise himself and throw himself around and go, look at me, look at my guns. You guys better watch out or I'll take you on. Paul wasn't doing any of that kind of stuff. He's not using his physical presence to intimidate people. I've watched people do this. We have all watched people do this. Hey, I remember years ago when I was subbing up at the high school that I had a really big kid that was, he was taller than me, but, and I was not, you know, I'm not a huge person, but I had to kind of come up to that guy that's taller than me, look up at him, and try to intimidate him physically because he was he was causing a lot of trouble. 
And he did finally come. My wife actually did the same thing with him one time. And that guy was, which he told me that scared the daylights out of me because this guy could at times be a bit aggressive. And she stood him down. But that's about a matter of kind of physical presence being not threatening, but just intimidating. And Paul says, and these guys said, Paul's not intimidating at all. He shows up and he's this nice guy. He's this kind of meek guy. In when he's present, when he's with them. I'm not talking about how he comes through the door. So this is a real good example that this word parousia does not really mean coming. It's really talking about being present to. Turn to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Go to verse 26 when you get there. Can I ask a question first? Yes. So if if his, his manner and his um, stature was you know, weak, unimpressive, but his speech was contemptible. I don't really understand how those go together. Okay, say that again. Because to me, contemptible, well, you said his manner, his stature was weak, unimpressive. He wasn't, you know, threatening or whatever. But after that, it says his speech was contemptible. Contem that contemptible is, is an interpretation. The Greek word simply means it was something that was despised. It's actually built off the word authority, and it's like, it has no authority to it. That's that's literally what that word despise means. There's no authority to that. In other words, he doesn't he doesn't speak with authority. In other words, they okay. wanted a guy that says, this is the way it is. That's what they were looking for. And Paul wasn't like that. Paul apparently okay. was very soft-spoken. So actual speech, the way he said it. Well, I would say his, his, his demeanor when he was teaching. Right. He could have spoke with force, but and he chose not to speak with force. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Yeah. So it's not actually that he's tripping over his tongue. It's not actually that, you know, that he couldn't keep his thoughts together. It was rather that he chose not to speak in a rather tough, fierce manner. Okay. You can get excited about a thing. Remember a couple weeks ago, those of you that sat in on Josh's Bible study, I'm telling you, Josh was Josh was just like really crazy excited about what he was teaching on. And that's a great thing. But Josh and being excited about it, there's a difference between being excited and standing and speaking with like tough tones. It's like, you better listen to me. Josh wasn't, he wasn't doing any of that. If he said, you better listen to me, it was, if, if he did say that, I didn't say he did. He was only saying it because like, this is good. You got to be listening to this. That's, you know, not... Not in a tough manner. So I just think that that's important for us to, you know, to understand that. Philippians 1. I'm excited about this tonight because I really guys want you guys to, to get what Paul's saying here. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 26. Uh, this is this is after Paul has this is after Paul has said, I'm kind of pulled between two things because I don't know whether I should go home to be with the Lord or stick around. To go to home, be with the Lord, is, he says, is much better. Something I think most Christians say, but we don't believe. We, uh, just, to, just to use this as an example of to encourage all of you with regard to this coronavirus stupidity. And I'm not saying that you can't take this seriously, but I'm saying we can be stupid about it because the world uses fear to manipulate people because the world is part of Satan's system and Satan manipulates people by fear. And with that, your days have been determined by the Lord. And so 
when we stop and we look at this fact that to go and be with the Lord is far better, the way some of us Christians, not hopefully any of us listening here, I hope not, we act is we really do exactly what Satan says to God over in the book of Job. Skin for skin. All that a man has said, he will, or all that a man has, he will give for his life. And you know, that's about the way most people are. They will fight pretty much right down to the wire to try to breathe one more day because they fear death, because they have no hope. Paul, on the other hand, had hope. So he says, to go and be with him, that's much better. That's a lot better than sticking around. To stay here, he says, is work. He actually says that. He says, it's work if I have to stay here. Because serving believers involves work, not sitting on your hands. And so Paul, in this, says, I'm pressed between these two things, but verse 24, but to remain in the flesh, that's more necessary for you. Now, again, people have asked, well, how, if God's determined our days, how would Paul have shortened this? Well, Paul could have gone in and intentionally botched his testimony before Caesar. And he could have been belligerent. And he could have been contrary to the character that he was just, that they were just talking about in 2 Corinthians. He could have come in and just been a real jerk uh, and given Christianity a bad name before Caesar. But he didn't do that. But had he done that, it, there's a possibility that God said, if that's the way you're going to be, Paul, you can come home. So anyway, as he says, he says, I'm going to remain. That's more necessary for you. And then having been persuaded, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for the benefit of the progress and joy of your faith. He wants to see them go on in order that your boast may increase in Christ Jesus by me through my presence again with you. My presence again with you means Paul says, I hope to come back. I hope to visit you guys in Philippi again. And when I get there, I hope that I'm able, God's able to use me to help you make more progress in the faith. Now again, turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you always have obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. This is a really good place to see that the idea of presence is contrasted to being absent. You're either present, or present, excuse me, or you're absent. And Paul's contrasting these two. And obviously, present just doesn't mean that you show up in the door. You know, if a teacher's, if you're subbing at the school, having done that many years, you get some kids that when you take attendance, they pop their head in the door and they go, uh, I got to be out of here. I got to go do something. And you're like, well, I'm going to mark you absent if you're not. Well, I'm here right now. Yeah, but the point is not that you're here when I take attendance and then you run off. The point is that you're here in the classroom. See, so you, you, you can tell me you're present, but in reality, you're going to be absent. What are you going to go do? Well, I got, you know, and then you get kids, you need to come inside or I'm marking you absent. I've done that with kids that have come in there, especially when you get into high school and you get seniors and juniors that think they don't have to show up in class because they can go off and do some other stupid thing that they want to do instead. Um, anyway, sorry if I digress, but the idea here, present and absent, I think you can get that idea, that picture of what he's talking about. Now, having, having seen that then, I want to go on and I want to look at some passages of Scripture where the word presence is going to be used of oftentimes what we call the coming of Christ. And the first, the first ones we want to look at are in Matthew 24. It occurs four times in Matthew 24. 
And uh, I believe all four of these actually refer to the same thing, and they don't refer specifically to the coming. And so Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, it says, And while sitting, while he was sitting upon the mountain of olives, his disciples approached him, and they privately said, Tell us, when will these things be? That has to do with the previous thing, all the stones on the temple being overturned that he just mentioned in verse 2. And what is the sign of your presence, not coming, but the sign of your presence, and the consummation of the age? So they want to know, when are you going to come and be present to us? What's the sign that tells us that you're going to come and be present? And by presence, they are looking at his being present. This, this is one of the things that tells you he's going to be present to rule the earth. People, to me, it always amazes me today that you got people that say he's sitting on the throne ruling right now. But, you know, the scriptures tell us that when he rules, people are going to know he's ruling. Today, most of the world doesn't even believe in Jesus Christ. But this is talking about a time in which he's going to be present and they will know that he's present. Now, if you look on down in this passage, when it's talking about uh, his presence, and you look down in verse 27, it says, and this is one of the things about his presence here, for as, as the lightning that goes from the east and shines as far as the west, in this way, will be the presence of the Son of Man. In other words, in, in, if you just went back up in the context, there were people then, just as there are people today, that are saying, oh, the Messiah showed up. Where is he? Well, he's in Jerusalem, and he's only meeting with a select group of rabbis. you know, Or he's out in this desert wilderness. Come out to see him. It's, Jesus says, it's not going to be like that. Everybody's going to see me. Because he says, as the lightning comes from the east and travels even unto the west, so that every and remember years ago, Stan Nelson pointed out the lightning doesn't travel east to west; it travels all over the place, which is important for this because he's not talking really just about lightning showing up. He's talking really about the fact that as the earth is moving, just as that makes it right now look like the sun and the moon pass overhead. So they're going to see the sun descending on the new Jerusalem as it's approaching earth, and they're going to see that bright, brilliant light, that light that Paul described as brighter than the noonday sun approaching the earth, and everybody's going to see it. There's not going to be anybody that's going to miss it. And so there's not going to be any secret coming of Christ at the end. Everybody's going to see it. By the way, that's a good statement with regard to the preterists, because there are people that believe that all of this or most of this was fulfilled in 70 AD, and people say, well, when did Christ come back? Well, yeah, people saw, the, there were some people there that saw him in the air, but we don't have any good testimony or record of any of this. This is talking about something that's really going to be seen clearly by everybody, not just a few people in Jerusalem. You look on down in the context a little bit further. Let's go back to verse 29 because he's given you some background on this. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so after the bulk of the tribulation that makes up what we call the tribulation period, the scripture, Daniel's 70th week, and we're in the day of the Lord here, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and then will appear the sign of 
of the Son of Man in heaven. Now, this is the sign of the Son of Man, not, but this is that sign that tells you he's on his way to be present. When Once he comes, he stays. He comes, deals with some battles, conquers, and sets up his authority, his reign, in a way that definitely it's not going on right now. And the, the thing is, it's not just that it's going to be this bright light that is God as he's descending on the new Jerusalem. It's the fact that there are no competing lights in the sky. All the other lights, all the other stars, God turns them all out. And Jesus Christ says, they're all going to go out, and then you're going to see this sign in the midst of this darkness, something unmistakable. I don't know if any of you have ever gone out at night and laid out in the backyard or something like that, and you look up at the stars, and if you look, just lay out there and look at the stars for a while, all of a sudden you see, oh, there's a satellite, just a clean light moving, and it just travels overhead, and then one's going this way, and then you see airplanes and stuff. But you almost can miss them, because they just, for a little while, they almost just look like stars up there in the sky, until you notice, oh, wait a second, they're moving, you see? This is going to be something that, it's unmistakable, because there's not thousands and thousands from a human perspective of other lights competing with the descent of the sun and in the daytime you don't see the stars in the sky because the sun sun the way its lights refracted on our atmosphere it, you we don't see it okay that's not going to happen out there in the future so that's when the sign of the son of man comes and then look down uh in uh, verse 36 but concerning that day or hour Concerning that, this verse 36, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, except the Father only. And this is talking about the Son in the realm of his human nature. As a man, he didn't know the day or the hour. In his divine nature, he certainly knows, because he was part of the he was part of the Trinity that planned all this. For as it was in the days of Noah, so will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, this is so it will be in his presence. These people are just going to be carrying on. This is amazing. At the end of Daniel's 70th week, with all the horror that's going on, these people are still going to be carrying on like, like it's everyday life, which is just insane that this is what they try to do in the midst of this while they know God's raining down wrath on them and they're shouting back at him. For as it was in the days of Noah before the flood, eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, right up until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they did not know until the flood or the cataclysm came and took away everything. And in this same way, it will be with the presence of the Son of Man. In other words, when the Son of Man comes to be present here and to remain present, it's going to be something unexpected. They're going to be carrying on life as normal uh, in connection with his presence. Now, I would say these last two passages are probably the closest ones you come to the idea of a coming. But most of the time, we're talking about a presence. Okay. Now, let's turn over to um, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. You didn't see that. I didn't do that. I didn't just lick my finger to turn the page. Because you don't touch your face. Well, that's not my face. That's my tongue. Sorry. Hey, hey, hey. Corona, Corona. Sorry, I shouldn't mock. Verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says, For we have not followed after wisely devised myths or fables that we made known to you, 
the power and presence of our Lord, having been eyewitnesses of his majesty, having received from the Father honor and glory, and a voice having come by that which by make that by magnificent glory, excuse me, this is my beloved son, this one, in whom I am well pleased, and this voice we heard from heaven, having then been carried with him, being in the holy mountain. Now, this is talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, the situation that involved John and Peter and Andrew, just three of the disciples, and they were present there. And what they got to see was not the coming of Christ. What they got to see was this is what his presence will be like when he's reigning over the kingdom on this earth during the first part of that kingdom. Uh, actually, it will go on like this, but this is what they will see. And so Peter says, hey, we're, we're telling you, I got to see the Lord in his glory. This is something for us to look forward to. I look forward to the rapture, but I can also look forward to the kingdom and seeing Christ in his glory in the kingdom doing what Peter got to see him do. Turn with me over to chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3. In between chapter 1 and chapter 3, in chapter 2, Paul tells us, or Peter, pardon me, tells us about some false teachers that are going to try to make believers think, guess what? Hey, uh, grace means we can do anything. Anything goes. We can be immoral. In fact, one of the things that he says about those teachers is they sit down at the table to eat with you guys and their eyes are all full of adultery. Meaning, I, I always look at it, guys, you better watch out. They're checking out your wives. These false teachers that are promoting grace, that's what they call it, and so, but one of the things they have to do to get away with promoting grace is they have to mock the idea that God would ever intervene, that God would ever do anything negative. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, we have these mocking mockers that mock. I just always just like this here in verse 3. I like that, the way he strings these together. It's knowing this, that there will be in the last days mocking mockers going after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his... Now, it's not... I don't, again, I don't think it's his coming. It's the promise of his presence. Because when Christ is present in the kingdom, is he going to tolerate this kind of stuff? No. He's not going to put up with it. If you get people that would have these things... Remember remember what Jesus said over in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if a man looks intently with the intention, takes a look, and it's a glance look, but if he takes a glance look at a woman with the purpose of lusting, he should take out of his eye, lest his whole body be, should be thrown into the lake of fire. Why? Because Christ won't tolerate that. He's not going to tolerate men going around having lusts in their heart, checking out other women. And that will be dealt with firmly. And the thing is, is only Jesus Christ is going to know the heart, so he's the only one who can actually judge people in this regard. I, I'm going to be involved in judging but I can't know their motives. I can't know their hearts. I'm not omniscient. And angels aren't omniscient. Only God is omniscient. And Jesus Christ, the judge, is omniscient. And he will be able to know. So they have to mock, oh, where is this coming? Why, since the fathers fell asleep, everything's always continued as it has been. God's never intervened in history. <laughs> he goes on and says, well, they're ignorant of some things, and God has intervened in history. Look down in chapter 3. And we have another presence, a different one. Where he, chapter 3, same chapter, down in verse 12. It says, eagerly expecting and being diligent or eager for 
the presence of the day of God, on account of which the heavens being burned will be destroyed, and the elements will be burned up, they will melt, and we then are eagerly expecting new heavens and a new earth, according to his promise, in which righteousness will settle down and be at home. In other words, this is very important in verse 13. In the eternal state, when there's new heavens and new earth, righteousness settles down as at home. Righteousness won't even settle down and be at home fully in the kingdom. The kingdom will be characterized by righteousness. But it's not going to be at home because there will still be people that will have evil lusts. There will still be people that will try to lead others astray. But in eternity, not the case. And by the way, that's important because uh, so, uh, something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share here in a moment uh, was shared with me. Uh, and this individual believes that at the second coming, at the end of Daniel's 70th week, at the second coming, the present heavens and earth, they're not destroyed, but they're remade, and you immediately go into the eternal state right then and there. The thousand years are only part of that eternal state. But what Paul says, or Peter says here, is that when he remakes that new heaven and new earth, righteousness settles down as at home. And righteousness will not be down, settled down at home in the thousand years. In fact, this individual was telling me that he believes even in eternity... There will still be people that will be born that will die as sinners, according to Isaiah 65. And that, if they're dying as sinners, they would be unrighteous, which means unrighteousness isn't at home. See, when you and I go on to eternity, one of the things to look forward to, we're not even going to have to be exposed to unrighteousness. I mean, think about that. After the rapture, I'm not going to have any unrighteous issues here. I'm going to be absolutely everything God wants me to be. But you know what? I'm still going to see unrighteousness on the earth, and I'm going to act as a judge. Paul says a judge of angels and a judge of the world, which if I'm judging them, it means I'm dealing with some unrighteous issues. So I'm still subject to having to observe um, uh, unrighteousness. Does everybody get this? And so that's what these people we're mocking back there is the coming of the presence of the Son. Here, it's we're looking forward to the presence of the day of God. In other words, we're not, Peter said, we're not just looking forward to the rapture. We're not even just looking forward to the thousand years. We're looking forward to a whole new universe in eternity in which we're going to see righteousness really settle down. That's really something settled down at home. That's something to anticipate. Something we've never been able to observe before. Now, with this, I want to go back and I want to look at I want to look at a statement in 2 Thessalonians, because this word is used second in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 three times. And it's three distinct presences, by the way. Three distinct presences. The first one is in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2. Now we ask you, brothers, on behalf of or with regard to the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering up to him. So he's coming to be present. Present to whom would you say? To, to us, to the church. Because he's coming to be present and we're gathering to him. See, he's not present to us now. You want to go over and you read 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8? Peter says, whom having not seen, we love. In other words, we don't see the Lord right now. He's not visibly present to us down here. I see him lived out through me. I see him lived out through other believers when we're living in love. But I don't 
actually see him specifically. And he says, hey, this is his presence. This is the rapture. This is when he becomes to be present to us in a way that we have not seen. Most of the church has never been able to visibly see Christ yet. In fact, even most of the church in the first century never saw him. Now look down in this chapter, and he talks about, talks about a man called the man of lawlessness. The book of Revelation refers to him as the beast. And he tells us, one of the things he says about this man of lawlessness, verse 7, is that the mystery of lawlessness is already working. In other words, Satan has always had a man ready to push out on the scene. I don't know who he is. I don't need to worry about who he is because I don't think he's ever going to show up. He may be on the scene right now. You might even see him in the papers, but you might not guess right now. Oh, that's the guy. He'll be the guy. Who knows? We don't know. And it says, then will be revealed, that is when the one holding or withholding ceases, he comes to be out of the way, then the lawlessness, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume, whom the Lord will take away, remove by the breath of his mouth, and will destroy by the appearing connected with his presence. Now we have, it's by the appearing connected with his presence. This is important because this is not by his rule in millennium that he's going to destroy. It's when he appears at the beginning of that presence. So he destroys the man of lawlessness when he returns. And we do have the word appearing there. The appearance of his presence. And the presence is what he's going to be initiating but when he comes back, we already told you that. Then verse 9. Whose coming, that's the lawlessness, whose, whose presence literally is according to the working of Satan. What, is that, what does it mean, his coming or his presence, the man of lawlessness? He has a presence also. He has a presence where he's going to rule over the world. For the better part of seven years, he's going to have great authority over the word world. And during the last three and a half years, He's going to be the top dog, the head over the world as a false, unbelieving, unrighteous man in opposition to God. And his presence is measured by the in-working of Satan. Satan's going to be working directly in this man for this man to be everything Satan wants him to be. So we have three presences. The presence of the Lord connected with our gathering to him. The presence of in which, or related to which, the Lord appears to destroy the man. And I believe it's not saying that he's already been present and connected with being present that he comes back. It's that he comes to be present and he appears and destroys the man of lawlessness. And then the last one, the man of lawlessness. Now the reason for that is, and I'm going to pull up a, give me a second here, I'm going to pull up a, uh, a, a graphic here to show you and I got this graphic from uh, W.E. Vine, okay? Because W.E. Vine taught this. W.E. Vine taught, and I wish I could, oh, I can. Where is it? Just a second. There we go. Annotate. Okay. So, um, and I want to annotate with a, just a second here. Where is it? Uh, I'll just spotlight. Okay. There we go. Okay, there we go. There's the first one. On the earth. This is the Lord on the earth before he dies and rises again. He dies, he ascends on high, and right now 
in an indeterminate amount of time, because we don't know how long this is in here. So far, it's been 2,000 years. He's in heaven. The church is in many ways on earth. But there's a time coming in which he comes back. And, and W.E. Vine took this word presence because it has a definite article. And he said it was always the same presence. It's the way he understood this. And that's the way this individual was talking to me. And so he believes that this presence here is talking about the Lord pre being present to rapture us, takes us up, and then we stay with him over the earth, present so that everybody on earth can see him and see us. And then he returns at the end, and he's on earth again until, uh, until eternity begins. And so this is during the tribulation. So this is what W.E. Vine was presenting, and this is what this is what was suggested to me recently. But what I've been trying to demonstrate is there is a presence of the Lord to the church that is distinct from this presence and distinct from his presence out here. And I would actually say this presence is out here. I think that I think that both the individual talking to me and W.E. Vine, I think they're wrong in stating that this is his presence. He's not really, it doesn't connect his presence. It connects his presence out here with the, with the kingdom or the first thousand years of the kingdom. I'm just trying to share that with you to give you an idea of the significance of this. And that's why he says here at this juncture, when he returns here, that he called this, and I'm not going to, appearance. Can I write appearance like this? Anyway, you can see it. There it is. APP. You know, it's abbreviation, appearance. This is his appearance. The appearance of his presence connected with this time out here. That's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about this here in 2 Thessalonians. Now, on top of that, on top of that, I'm going to stop sharing this. We'll go back over here. I want to go back to our passage in 1 Thessalonians, except I want to go back to chapter 2. Yeah, but can I ask a question? Please do. Okay, can you put your little picture up again? Sure. Um, I want to make sure I'm getting what you're saying. Uh, the, okay, so Jesus is present on the earth, then he dies and he ascends into heaven. His presence is now in heaven. When he comes down that, and actually, gets the church, would, that's a kind of presence coming for the church, but it's not that they are the people of the tribulation, it's not, he's not present to them until he comes at the second advent, and then he is present on the earth. Exactly. Correct? Exactly. So I would take this word, this word here, and I would put it up here with regard to the church. And then there's this return here. But W. E. Vine. So you would make this line down here instead of it being he's coming together. Let's see. Uh, well, the this is this is uh, the uh, rapture. So the rapture would be a higher uh, arrows right? because it's present the up there. Up there. Yeah. yeah. And then he comes down to second advent. He's present to the earth, uh, like being over the earth technically, isn't it? Yes. And he will be More on like the earth. Here. He will be coming. He will be coming and going from the earth, but there's a kingdom over the earth during that. Or a, right. A city the the New Jerusalem. Right. Right. And then... Uh, Okay, that's how I see it. And I just wanted to clarify that that's what you meant. Right. Now. Why can't 
this be here? Because 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 he takes us back up here. Yes, but he does come down here. <laughs> he he comes to get us, and then we all go all the way back up here. He doesn't stay here during the during the tribulation period. But this is the present. He's present to us. He he's present. He's present with us right here at one point. At this point where we meet him, that's when he's present to us. Yeah. This is no. This is saying he's present during the whole tribulation period over the oh, earth. Everybody right, get that? Gotcha. This word presence here. They're saying that Jesus is present over the earth during the whole seven years of Daniel seventy three. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Now, so let's go back. Let's let's look. Wait, does everybody get that? Really? Does everybody get that? I'm disagreeing with that, but it was very interesting. I just came across that today when I was going back over some notes, and I thought I was just kind of wonder how Vine handles this word. And interesting enough, he had this Vine had this little chart in his book uh, on this matter, and Vine agrees with us on a lot of things. I just, I think I disagree on that, on that point. But I think one of the passages is, that's very important, and I told you I wanted to look at all these passages, and I realized the hour is getting on here. But look in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. We'll just point this one out. We have four places that the word presence is used in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2.19. says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not even you... Before the Lord Jesus Christ in his presence. Now, uh, what we just looked at, those people say that's not a problem. Because, yeah, we are, we get, are gathered up to him and we are present to him. and he, But he's also present over the whole earth because they make it a technical presence for everything. Rather than distinguishing, well, there's a presence to us, another presence uh, at a later time. Turn with me to chapter 4. I'm saving our verse for last, because our verse, I think, is really the clincher on this. But chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he says, um, verse 15, because we had, remember, there were believers that didn't know about the dead. So in the time after Paul left, some of them were like, oh, some people died. They missed, they missed out on the Lord coming for us. And Paul has to say, no, no, they didn't. For this we say, verse 15 of chapter 4, for this we say by a word of the Lord, that we, the ones living and remaining until the presence of the Lord, this is his presence to us, not his presence to the earth. This is his presence to us. Presence of the Lord in no way will precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, and then he goes on and explains how the dead are raised first. They're standing on the earth. We're standing on the earth and we all get caught up together. So that's how we don't go ahead of them. Okay, and that's what he, but it's his presence, and it's his presence to us, not his presence to the earth. I, I really, I don't think the earth really is going to see him when he comes back for us in the rapture. I think that's our privilege, that he doesn't share with the world. They may see us depart, but they don't see where we're going. Okay. Now turn to chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. Do you ever look at yourself and think? Um, Tim? Yes. There's no verse that indicates, is there, that they're going to see us leave? No, no, there isn't. I'm just saying, maybe That's maybe like supposition. Yeah, I just said maybe they'll see us leave, but I don't yeah. know that. But I don't think that we have any basis of saying that they're going to see the Lord coming for us. To, or coming we to don't have any reason to know that one way or the other. No. No, exactly. Exactly. I agree. 
So now 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. So now the God of peace himself sanctify or set you apart holy, even the whole of you, the spirit, the soul, and the body, blameless. Notice all these parts are blameless in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, or that it might be kept blameless in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, faithful is one calling, he will do it. So there's not a question. It's not like, well, maybe you'll be blameless. He says, no, he's going to do it. But Paul's just expressing his wish in the first part. I really want you guys to be set apart. Every last part of you, body, soul, and sp oh, I did it wrong, spirit, soul, and body. That's the way Paul says it. Dave Spurbeck pointed out years ago, we're, we, we're so earthly that we always think from the ground up, body, soul, and spirit. But in reality, Paul's it's spirit, soul, and body. I just try to be cognizant. But this is, again, this is his presence with us, to us. I don't think this presence to the world. Now let's go back to chapter 3 and look at the end of this in verse 13. This is where we started, and this is important here now, what he's getting at. And we're not even talking about the other issues of wrath and where all this comes in and how this all plays out. Simply pointing out his presence to us is different than his presence to the earth. And if you look at verse 13, it says, Did you establish your hearts blameless in holiness? What's the next thing he says? Before. before God our Father. He doesn't say now before Christ in his presence. He says, before God our Father. What does that imply? That implies that Christ does exactly what he said in John 14, 3. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming to get you so I can take you where I am. That's one of the strongest rapture verses. I think I told you several years ago, I read an article by a guy that says, all oh, these these evangelicals, they're ruining Christianity because they're focusing on things like the rapture. They said, there's not a good verse. They said, if, and he, he said the verse in John 14, he says, it's so esoteric, who can understand it? And I'm like, it's, it's so easy. I've understood that verse since I was a little kid. Since I was a little kid, I knew Christ is coming back for us. He says, I'm going to go get a place ready. I'm going to come and get you and take you back there. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that. But I guess if you become a great intellectual philosopher, you're too smart to understand it then, I guess. I don't know. I'm, trying, I'm being sarcastic. I apologize. But it's really plain. And okay, this, I have another question. Yes. So in this verse, this 3, 3.13. Yes. I take it that that, that presence with his saints... Uh, uh, okay, maybe it's, uh, I take it that second advent. I don't Are think, you saying that it's rapture? I think it is rapture. And it's, and, and, it's, and is it's a, it the way that the, the way it's written? Because um, he takes us before God. We're without blame because in this, the twinkling of the eye, the oats and nature is removed. And we go to God at the presence, not the coming. Maybe that's what's throwing me off. The presence of our Lord with his saints. And, and, so you're taking that that's rapture. Yeah, and it's actually the end of the rapture. This is when he's come back for us 
come back and presented us before the Father, so it'd be after the Bema seat. That's exactly Amen. What it Hallelujah. Is. That's exactly what, what this is. What, this is not his what, presence to the earth. Who was that that said that? What did Josh? What did you say, Josh? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There we go. There we go. We don't get enough of those in our church. <laughs> no, that's good. Because that's exactly what this is. This 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 verse is such a blessing. And this this verse is, I think, one of the things that shows us the presence is not, there's not one presence. This is when we are present back in heaven. When he has come, he's become present to us. And now we're present. He's present. Before the Father, we are there, and He presents us to the Father. And he says, "Dad, this is the gal. I'm, this is the gal I'm going to marry." You know, that's what He's doing here. He's brought His bride home to the Father, which a lot of people, by the way, have pointed out the rapture imagery connected with marriage in the Book of Thessalonians, and this is one of those. This is one of those points. This is not His presence on Earth, because His presence on Earth. He comes back and he's present there. This is talking about his being present before the Father and we are there with him. That's what this presence is. This is a totally different presence altogether. So it's, to some degree, it's, is it the rapture? Maybe, I'm, I'm going to say it's the other end of the rapture. It's when the rapture is all over and we're present before the Father, holy and without blame. What a beautiful thing to look forward to. Like I've told you before, I wish they would have understood this when I was growing up. But a lot of rapture teachers when I was growing up that I was around, they used the rapture to try to scare Christians into being better people. And God never tries to scare us into being better people. He, it, it, Titus 2.11 says, grace teaches us. Not fear. Not fear. Grace teaches us. And that's a beautiful truth to be taught by grace rather than intimidated into being better by by fear. And this is a this is the thing that encourage that should encourage your heart to say, man, I'm going to stand before the Father blameless and holy in holiness. Hmm. Maybe I could have a little bit of that blameless and holy character right now. Yeah, we can. That's exactly what Paul's asking for. Get a little taste of that right now this side of heaven. Any comments or questions? That's good. This is this is a word study.